0: Hello, falava. This is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. also sana Coming up,
1: they're trying to manipulate the system to make it work in their favour.
0: The fate of the deep ocean is being decided in Jamaica. Also,
2: the world accepted this injustice needed to be addressed.
0: The Commonwealth Secretary-General discusses debt and climate change with Lydia Lewis. And later, it's been almost four years since Bougainville held the referendum, but there's little to show for. The head of a Canadian deep sea mining startup says it's now a question of when rather than if commercial scale mining will happen. The comment comes as the UN organisation in charge of deep-sea mining in international waters wraps up its meetings in Kingston, Jamaica, where it was agreed more time is needed before mining rules are adopted. Caleb Fotheringham has more.
1: The International Seabed Authority, or ISA, met to discuss the rules around mining in the high seas. The ISA's council meeting finished last Friday, agreeing that no deep-sea mining code would be adopted, but discussions will continue in November and into 2024. Gerard Barron, chief executive officer of mining startup The Metals Company, is confident deep-sea mining in international waters will eventually get the green light. Nauru is also able to submit an application for the company to mine without regulations in place after the island nation triggered a clause known as the two-year rule in 2021. However, a spokesperson for the metals company says it wants to start mining when regulations are finalised and not before. James Heater from Greenpeace is still worried about the company, saying it is trying to pressure the ISA to make a decision sooner than it should. They're trying to manipulate the system to make it work in their favour. They're trying to push for regulations to be completed sooner than they should be. They're trying to push for deep-sea mining to go ahead. Pacific Network on globalizations deep-sea mining spokesperson Joey Toe says more time is needed before regulations are adopted.
2: There is strong pushback from civil society that we should not adapt or agree to regulations anytime soon. You know, we're far from reaching this point and we need more time, we need more science to better inform these regulations if we are to move forward.
1: Mr Toe wants countries to call for a moratorium on deep-sea mining.
2: We're calling that no application or scope of work should be approved by the ISEE and the assembly should vote for a moratorium or a precautionary pause.
1: The list of countries calling for at least some sort of pause because of environmental concerns grew this month to around 20. Mr Heater from Greenpeace says there is a list of concerns.
3: It's potentially going to harm fragile ecosystems and disrupt deep sea processes that are really poorly understood by science at the moment. What we do know is that deep-sea mining is a really highly destructive practice. It bulldozes the seafloor, decimates sea life and biodiversity. It also potentially releases huge amounts of carbon.
1: However, environmental manager with the metals company, Dr Michael Clark, says NGOs like Greenpeace have made its position on a lack of data. He says the metals company have been collecting information in the Clarion-Clipperton zone where they intend to mine for the last 10 years.
3: It always amazes me on
2: how you can take such a forceful position when the data hasn't been collected yet, you know, when you're not fully over the data and you haven't fully investigated
1: the claims that you're making. Dr Clark says a lot of work has been done to reduce the impact of the plume to a level that is acceptable. He also says it's a common myth that mining will cause huge amounts of carbon to be released. The amount of CO2
2: that will be emitted from the riser pipe on a daily basis will be equivalent to the ship's captain revving the engine a couple of times. That's
1: the order of magnitude, so it's negligible. Dr Clark says that in the final stretch of completing the Environment Impact Assessment.
0: Commonwealth Secretary-General is calling for a more inclusive financial system that drives financial resources towards climate action, particularly for climate-vulnerable countries. The World Tourism Organization Summit has just concluded in Mauritius, East Africa. The Commonwealth Secretary-General, Baroness Patricia Scotland, spoke with Lydia Lewis.
2: Tourism breathes life into the ecosystem, the communities and the people in SIDS, two-thirds of which, as you know, commonwealth uh, members so the Pacific is incredibly important so it's a vital source of revenue to our small island developing states for livelihoods and you know the, the impact of the disaster recovery the debt servicing and the biodiversity preservation that's had a huge impact on our small islands and and the disruption of tourism therefore has been very painful
1: Absolutely. And with this skyrocketing debt right across the Pacific, we know that nations now are, are turning more now than ever to developed states, China, the US, for assistance.
2: We have to accept that if you look at the position of the small island developing states, they have been disproportionately disadvantaged by this climate crisis, which they have not contributed to. If you look at the G20, the G20 countries have probably com- um, gr- uh, committed to 80% of the greenhouse gases. Uh, the small uh, states have, have con- contributed less than 5% of the developing states. So this is inequitable. And we now need to honor the contributions and the commitments that were made right back in 2009. The world accepted that this imbalance, this injustice, needed to be addressed. And the developed states committed to a $100 billion contribution for adaptation and mitigation. That still has not been honoured. We know that to uh, pay for that which is needed, we probably need $4 trillion. So this is now the time for the world to accept that if we are to rebalance the position between small and, develop, and small developing states and developing states and the developed states, we're going to have to redress that imbalance. And you'll know that we've been talking about uh, introducing a universal vulnerability index
1: And have you spoken with King Charles following his coronation about the Pacific?
2: Well, I think you know as King Charles has had this passion almost for his whole life and his commitment to climate change, his commitment to the small and vulnerable countries in particular for climate change has continued. And we came together as a a Commonwealth before the lead we a leaders meeting before the um before the uh uh coronation and it's absolutely clear that all the leaders of the commonwealth countries are committed to this and they remain committed to this and i'm confident that the king's commitment remains Undimmed.
1: And finally, it's hard to ignore the increase of geopolitical tensions in the region. The UK has also shown an interest in the region. What are your observations? What is the Commonwealth's position on these superpowers like the UK, China and the US using their power across the Pacific at the moment?
2: Well, I think the most important thing for our Commonwealth family is for us to remain resolute, supporting each other, promoting good practice, promoting good governance, the rule of law, democracy, all of those things that we have done for the whole time that we have been a Commonwealth family, and basically can make sure that our members no longer drown in debt.
0: It's approaching four years since Bougainville held a referendum on independence from Papua New Guinea, but little progress seems to have been made since. That non-binding referendum was 97.7% in favour of independence. For a number of reasons, consultations have faltered. Professor Anthony Regan from the Australian National University told Don Wiseman that a change in approach is needed to reignite the process.
3: The consultation that was required by the constitution started quite late, 18 months after the referendum. And although there'd been quite a bit of planning for that process to make it as meaningful an engagement where parties could really listen to one another and be helped to get over problems by having an external moderator who would chair meetings, advise the parties and help them resolve differences, those arrangements were never put in place for a a variety of reasons. And instead, when the consultation, started in May of 2021, the parties simply went back to engaging in much the same way as they do in the joint supervisory body, which is the joint body that oversees the overall implementation of the peace agreement. That body's been meeting Once or twice, sometimes three times a year since 2005, when the autonomous government was established. By using that process, they've denied themselves, I think, the opportunity to really hear from one another what their concerns are, what their goals are, and exploring various ways that might be used that would take account of the the goals and the concerns of both governments. The Bougainville Government went into the the process pretty confident that PNG was going to be uh, amenable to their demand for early independence, but just because of the ninety seven point seven percent majority was so overwhelming in a democratic sense. And they were quite surprised when only after the second meeting in July of 2021, PNG uh, made it clear that they were not really agreeing. And at that point, Bougainville cut off the consultation process in the third meeting and said, we'd just sort out what happens when the results of the, the referendum go to Parliament." But without anything agreed between them, it means the results are going to Parliament possibly late this year, possibly in the first half of next year to a a yes or no vote because there's no alternative approaches that take account of the concerns of the government on the table. And it's most likely that there'll be a pretty strong no vote if it goes straight to Parliament. Rather than have, have the issues just decided very quickly on a yes or no vote, it would be preferable to go back and Resume the consultation that ended in December 21. Taking a different approach completely. Though. Yes. A different approach with a moderator, which is uh, was agreed. It was agreed that the former Irish Prime Minister, Bertie Ahern, who chaired the Referendum Commission, would be the moderator, but he never got involved. And so they've gone through the process without help from an independent person who can help them to resolve differences. So it would be going in with a moderator, and the governments are talking about that at the moment, the possibility of getting in a moderator again, a different moderator and it would need much more creative engagement between the two sides, listening to one another and working out what's possible. So if there's this return to more negotiations or more consultations, and an independent moderator has brought in, you'd essentially see the process as starting again, would you? A lot's been done already. It's not wasted. The Bougainville position of independence and full membership of the UN is on the table. A current timetable for ending the whole process is on the table, but may not be realistic when the options for going forward are examined. PNG has put on the table uh, its major concerns about the Bougainville demand. It's never opposed explicitly the Bougainville position in the negotiations, in the consultations, but it has expressed its concerns. So there's a, a lot done that would be the starting point for a, a more serious engagement about where to go now. One of the big concerns is just how Bougainville would get by, because it essentially has no economy, does it? And there's still three and a half years after that referendum, there is still no dramatic economic development there. Yes. The big issue is the limited economic development is generating limited revenue for government. And so at the moment, the Bougainville government's budget is funded only about 20% by revenue generated in Bougainville. And if they were to become independent, the estimate by Satish Chand, a Fijian economist who works here in Canberra, he believes Bougainville as independent would need a two to three times larger budget than the present one. So of course, that 20% 20% contribution to the current budget would drop to 6 or 7%. Uh, so it's very difficult to see Bougainville sustaining its ability to deliver government services if it was, for example, to just mount a declaration of independence unilaterally. And if PNG were to reject that and cut off its funding... Bougainville would be in deep trouble financially, and that of course would be a recipe for a lot of stress and potential conflict inside Bougainville. The other possible serious problem would be the the need to generate revenue, seeing Bougainville make precipitate decisions to try and reopen the Panguna mine and open other possible minds as quickly as possible and perhaps with upfront payments and in the process it could be under pressure to make poor choices of development partners and could also be under pressure to make agreements that would not be very fair and equitable. And of course, we all know what happened in 1988 when an unfair and unequitable revenue distribution from the Panguna mine was a significant factor in the violent conflict there. So Bougainville could be forced into making very difficult choices that could have long-term implications.
0: That's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeart Radio Podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, till for three four.